This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Acts chapter 15, and uh, we are working our way through the book of Acts. And uh, so now we're on this very fascinating passage. It's all been fascinating, but uh, really a historic moment. This is a watershed uh, event and passage in the whole, whole book. So let me pray, and uh, we'll jump into Acts 15. God, thank you for all that you provide for us, Lord, even as we're singing this morning about grace and your love for us, your acceptance of us, your mercy towards us. Even as we're singing about that, Lord, uh, we just pray that that good news would really be good in our ears, in our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here who's yet to really experience that good news, we pray that you would uh, encourage them and uh, give them the good news in a way, Lord, that it gives, grants them new life, that they believe. Lord, we ask today that as we look at this passage that you would show us what's really important, that we would reorient our minds and our affections uh, to what really matters, Lord, that, that what really matters to you would really matter to us, we pray today as we look at this passage. So open our eyes, open our hearts, and uh, grant us grace to respond to you. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength and clarity that I might be able to proclaim your word to the, uh, the folks gathered here today for your glory and for all of our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, here's one of the problems with the church. And uh, by church, I mean the uh, evangelical church and particularly um, those with conviction in the evangelical church. And by the evangelical church, I mean Grace Church. And by Grace Church, I mean you and me. Uh, here's the problem. One of the problems, there's a lot of problems for us as, as, as Christians because any times you join humans together, there's problems. But here is a problem that, that, that causes a lot of difficulty in the life of a church. Uh, and that is this, that we have a tendency to take something that's probably a two or a three, a concern, that's probably a two or a three in terms of the Scripture, and we boost it up to a ten. And uh, so it's a ten for us, but it's really probably to God only about a, a two or a three. We all have that tendency, and we can do it with a lot of different things, but we can particularly do it with the theme that we're going to look at today, because the passage we're going to look at today is on legalism. And we can tend to take something that is a two and a three, or a three, and call it legalism and boost it up to, uh, to a ten. So, you know, a family that is legalistic is a family that won't allow their kids to do stuff that I allow my kids to do. So they're legalistic, according to the center of the universe and the fount of all truth and wisdom, me. And so what we tend to do is we look at other people and we judge them by our standard. So if they won't do something that I feel the freedom to do, they're legalistic. On the other hand, if they feel free to do something that I don't, well, then they're liberal, they're worldly, they don't love Jesus, you know, fill in the category of how we view them that way. So we tend to do that sort of thing. And 
One of the challenges is when we take certain issues and boost them to a 10, whether they're accusing and judging other people of legalism. And there is a whole anti-legalism legalism, which I'd like to teach on someday, but there's an entire response and resurgence now, which is nothing more than anti-legalism legalism. Uh, don't put that on me. You can't. It's a rule. I just established it. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's anti-legalism legalism. So there, there's, there's, we can look at others and do these kinds of things. And when we take something that is small and we boost it to a 10, division, offense, uh, all kinds of things happen. The passage we're going to look at today is a 10. What we're going to look at today is a 10. It's real legalism. I mean, it's, it's legalism and the truth. A lot of what we call legalism isn't even legalism. We kind of have all kinds of uh, definitions. This is real legalism, which is I keeping the law to make myself acceptable before God. That's legalism. And that's what this passage that we're going to read today is. So what we're going to do is it's about 35 verses. It's a big passage. It's a complex passage. I won't be able to jump into all the detail on it. I won't be able to answer all the questions about it, A, because I don't know all the answers, and B, because it's, uh, it's a pretty thick text. But I do want to look at uh, each section of this passage. We're going to read a section, then I'm going to comment on it, make some application uh, at the end of the message. But let me, let me set the stage for what's happening here, because the context is really important. The, shi- the power, the shifting of power is moving in the church. So the power has been in Jerusalem. It's shifting to a new church, Antioch. Antioch is becoming the center for world missions. And Jerusalem is the conservative base of Jewish Christians where, where, they, where the gospel first took off and people first believed. But now the, the, the power is shifting, so to speak, or I should say the influence is shifting to Antioch because it's from this other church that the, the Gentiles are starting to be reached. I mean, here's how it all started. Peter, one of the apostles, God told him to go to a guy named Cornelius and tell him the good news of Jesus to reach Cornelius a Gentile. He did that. Cornelius and all of his house became Christians. And then uh, some other Christians went to a town called Antioch and started telling people about Jesus there. People started responding. Gentiles in a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, very international city, sophisticated city. People started responding to the Lord there. So Jerusalem sends up uh, someone to investigate, Barnabas. Barnabas goes to Antioch and he says, this is legit, this is the real gospel. People are really responding. So he goes and gets Paul and they lay foundations in that church. And so we have this Antioch church made up of Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. Then the Lord speaks to the Antioch church and says, send your two best guys out on a missionary tour and have them go start churches uh, all over the Gentile world or parts of the Gentile world. So they go to Cyprus, they go to Galatia, and they start a bunch of churches. We looked at it last week where they were reaching Zeus worshipers with the good news of the gospel. So they come back to Antioch after that missionary endeavor. They tell everybody Gentiles are believing in different places and everybody's totally excited. So it's a thrill that this Antioch church not only is made up of diverse Gentiles, but now they're sending out people from their church to start churches among the Gentiles, and it is game on. The gospel is spreading not only beyond Jerusalem, but now beyond this base church in Antioch. So that's all great news. At the end of 14, Paul tells the Antioch church, God has opened up a door to the Gentiles, but there's about to be a problem, and it starts in chapter 15. Verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses and look at them. But some men came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, 
Men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessity to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, things are happening, and we've got all these Gentile Christians in Antioch. Some guys come down from Jerusalem. They're known, sometimes they're called the Judaizers. Uh, They're called the circumcision party. Uh, Some of them may have been associated with the Pharisees. Uh, They come, these are believers in Jesus. They come to Antioch, and they say, hey, it's great that everybody's having a grace fest here, and everybody is loving Jesus, this is wonderful, but you guys skipped a major step. As a Gentile, you can't just become a Christian and a follower of Jesus. You have to first become a Jew. You have to be circumcised, and you have to follow the law of Moses. Then you can become a Christian. Now, before we're too hard on these guys, and I intend to be really hard on them, but before we're hard on them, I think it's worth realizing that there's some logic to their argument. See, what, what, they're, what they're doing is they're recognizing their history. In Genesis 17, God came uh, to Abra- Abraham and told him that he was going to give him a sign that Abraham and all of those who would follow him uh, in Israel, that they were God's people. He's going to give them a sign. And so the sign was that all males would be circumcised, all infants would be circumcised, all uh, baby boys would be circumcised. That would be a sign that they were different than the Gentiles and that God had put his mark on them and made them his own people. So it wasn't just a medical procedure. Uh, it was a, or an optional procedure for a newborn uh, boy in Israel. It was a religious requirement, which signaled that God had come and chosen a people for himself, and that was sort of the mark that you had been chosen by God. So they're saying, look, all the way back there, God said, this is the mark that you're my people. And through all the, all the ages... Uh, all Israelite males were circumcised. Jesus came. He's an Israelite male. He's circumcised. Jesus is God in the flesh. He fulfills the law. He comes, dies for our sins, is raised to new life. And then he sends the church out to preach the gospel. The church starts reaching people who aren't Jewish. But we're still the people of God. So they need to go back to Genesis 17, get the mark of being the people of God, embrace the law of Moses, then they can follow the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus as well. In other words, Gentiles, you started like at number three. But you've got to go back to number one, which is circumcision, and number two, which is obeying the law of Moses. Then you can b- follow Jesus and be a believer. That's what they're saying. So that at least has, it's not just some I- insane idea. The, the pro, it has some logic to it. The problem is that it's not what Jesus taught. And it's not what the apostles here are teaching. Jesus taught that the way to the Father and the way to know God is through Him. And the way to receive new life is believing in Christ as the Savior. Not obeying the law or even taking the sign of the law, physical 
circumcision. So, here, this is causing quite a stir. I mean, you have Gentiles going, whoa, wait a minute, what? Well, Paul and Barnabas, they stand up, and if you, you, you read in verse 2, it says, they had no small dissension and debate. That's a polite way of saying it got heated. Barnabas and Paul said, no way. This is very serious. This is legalism. This is a gospel issue. This is a ten. I mean, this is so serious that they're saying it's not just Jesus, it's not just the grace of God that saves you, it's not just through faith, it's through Jesus plus something you do that makes you right with God. It's grace plus the law. It is faith, yes, you believe in Jesus, but it's faith of those who are the people of God who take the sign of circumcision and obey the law. It's faith plus, grace plus, Jesus plus, and they will not hear of it. So it is so serious that John Calvin said of this passage, he said, Christianity would have come to nothing if Paul had yielded. This isn't little L legalism. This is serious. If Paul had said, okay, you guys are right, we wouldn't perhaps be sitting here today. Now, perhaps God would have chosen someone else and done something else, but, but you know what I'm saying. We wouldn't be sitting here today in the grace of God if Paul and Barnabas had not taken a stand for the gospel. So they go up to Jerusalem to talk about this. There's a debate. They can't reach a conclusion. So they go up to Jerusalem to talk about this with the apostles and the elders. I love how they go. As they're going, they're stopping in Phoenicia and Samaria, verse 3, and they're describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and it's bringing great joy to everyone. So along the way, they're saying, hey, guess what? We went out and preached Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone, no circumcision, no law. The Gentiles got saved. It's glorious, and everybody's excited. So on their way, they're not mute about this. They're not passive. They're not saying, well, many ideas and kind of in a pluralistic pluralistic church we probably need to be open to different ideas about the gospel no they're saying this is what god did we're going to tell about it make no mistake about it and so they've got this whole tour up to jerusalem where they're showing their slides and, and telling the story so when they get there um it says that they tell it to the apostles and the elders they all declared they told them what god had done with them Verse 5, but this is where some people step up and say it is necessary for these to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. So they're telling these stories and they say, hold on, hold on, that's wrong. These people that you're describing have to be circumcised. So that's the problem. The problem is there are people who are introducing it's grace plus, it's Jesus plus. What happens next is they debate the problem. Um, in Jerusalem among the leaders. So let's read verses 6 through 21. This is debating the problem. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You can imagine probably an uproar of celebration from those who were on the Jesus team at that moment, saying, it's Christ alone, and... He shares that. It goes on. And all the assembly fell silent, 
And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has been in every city those who proclaimed, who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles. No, I'm sorry, stop right there, 6 through 21. So this is where they are debating the issue. So once they get together, there's much debate. It says uh, there had been much debate, and then Peter stands up and and, uh, speaks. Peter's an all-star. He is a significant guy. He followed Jesus. He's well-respected in Jerusalem there. And so he stands up, and he basically says, look, you know what happened with me. When we studied this, Peter was not looking to reach the Gentiles. He was hesitant. He says, you know, God told me to go to Cornelius. And when I went to Cornelius, it was obvious God made no distinction between Cornelius the Gentile and his family, his household, and us. Verse 8 says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, these Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So here's what he's saying. Guys, you know, I went to Cornelius, I started preaching about Jesus, and the same thing that happened at Pentecost happened to them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the, uh, the disciples, the apostles are gathered together. God pours down the Holy Spirit on them, and they start speaking in languages they do not know and praising God. That's what happened. So he said, when I went to this Gentile's house, they don't know anything. I start telling them about Jesus. They burst out speaking in languages they don't know. And it's like, whoa, God did the same thing with them he did with us. None of them got circumcised. None of them embraced the law of Moses. None of them had to obey the law to be believed. God just dumped the Spirit on them, just like us. And they were cleansed. Remember, he he thought of them as unclean. He said, but they were cleansed in their hearts, verse 9, by faith. They weren't cleansed by the law. They weren't cleansed by being circumcised, the sign of the covenant. They were cleansed by believing in Jesus. I preach Jesus, they believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came, did the same thing he did in us, and by faith, they're new people. They don't need the law. So he's giving an example of what happened and reminding them. So everybody's silent after that. I mean, Peter's the starting pitcher, so he kind of starts off here. Then they bring in the middle reliever, which is uh, Barnabas and Paul, and they relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, they're not saying that because God did miracles, that means the Gentiles um, are in, probably what they're meaning is they preach the word and it says that God confirmed it with signs and wonders. So he's saying, I preached the gospel and God did miracles among them, demonstrating that he was bringing them into the family of God. I mean, last week we read about the guy who was lame and, and Paul spoke to him and he was healed instantaneously. 
So he didn't stand up and was healed and believed in Jesus. And Paul said, oh, wait a minute, this is not really real. Circumcise the man and start keeping the Mosaic law, then you can believe in Jesus. No, it was just we preached Christ and they believed and God was working. Then they bring in the closer. The guy who shuts down the argument is uh, James. James is the brother of Jesus. And, uh, and i got to believe, you know, I don't know, that's probably why I'm not the brother of Jesus, because I would have pulled that card regularly. You know, any argument, I think you could say, well, you know, growing up with Jesus, I remember one time we were having dinner, and Jesus said, okay, where are you going to go with that? You pull the I'm the brother of Jesus card, end of argument. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't say I'm the brother of Jesus. But he is the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's also the writer of the book of James. So he's really influential. And he would be really influential with the circumcision party, the Judaizers, whatever you want to call them, because he's the pastor of their church. And so they're, they're looking to James, and James shuts it down. I mean, James says, look what Simeon told us. Simeon's another name for Simon, so that's Peter. Uh, look what Peter told us. Peter told us, verse 14, about how God visited the Gentiles. Look what he says, to take for them a people for his name. That's Old Covenant Israel language. The people of Israel are a people for Yahweh, that's God's name, a people for God's name. And now he's saying the Gentiles are a people for God's name as well. And he not only says, because Peter told us his example, and Paul and Barnabas told us his example, he goes Bible on them and says, Amos 9 said this would happen. Amos 9 says, this is verses 16 and 17, I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. What's he saying? The tent of David fell. That's the old covenant people of God, but I will restore it. I will work through my people ultimately by bringing Christ, sending Christ to die for sinners. And there'll come a remnant out that will seek the Lord, they and they with the Gentiles who are called by my name. So I'm going to restore my people, and the Gentiles are going to be a part of that. They're going to be called by my name as well. So James makes the point of the Scripture, and then he lays down a judgment. Uh, after hearing from everyone, he says, Therefore my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's don't put anything on them. Let them be saved by grace like we all are in Christ. Don't put anything. Don't add. Don't say you've got to do this to be accepted by God. Let, let them, let's do not trouble them is what he said. He says, and this is really winsome pastoral wisdom, and I'll explain why in a second. But he says, let's do right to them and ask them to avoid four things. Let's tell them to avoid uh, things polluted by idols, verse 20, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, and from blood. Okay, so he says to them, there's, they're saved by faith, by grace, but let's recommend that they avoid four things. Now, there is a lot of um, debate about what these four things are and why he said them. Um, in one commentator I read just had six pretty solid arguments for what they all meant, and they were all different. So this is a bit of a challenging, challenging idea. I'll tell you what I think is going on here, what, as I understand it from the Scripture, that he's calling them to avoid four things that characterized pagan worship. 
the Gentiles are from a pagan background. And so he tells them, first of all, to avoid things that are strangled. I'm sorry, to avoid things that are polluted by idols. If you'll look up or look down, however your Bible is, look down at uh, verse 29. It's repeated there, and he says it a little differently. He says that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So what's he saying? Okay, you come out of a pagan background. You live in one of these Gentile cities. There, There are temples, houses of worship in the city. And what would happen is you as a Gentile or as a pagan and your family and your neighbors would all go down to the temple. They'd slaughter an animal. They would offer it up to a pagan god. Then they would eat the animal, so it would be a feast in the idol temple. And a lot of other things happened as well. Uh, Frequently there were uh, temple prostitutes there, so part of the worship would not only be uh, eating the idol meat and feasting and worshiping these idols, but also uh, having sex with a prostitute in the temple, uh, sometimes just outright orgies. It was just a a culture that was very uh, hedonistic and very sensually driven, and that uh, was wed with their worship, and they were all together. So he's saying, Paul's going to say in Corinthians, do not go down to the temple and eat meat in these temple feasts. Uh, Don't do that. Um, Don't get back into the the environment you were in. Now he says, if you go to someone's house and they bought meat down at the market, and that was leftover meat from the temple, and so you're not in the room where people are... Uh, worshiping and feasting and then fornicating or committing adultery, if you're not, avoid, avoid all that. If somebody buys something at the market and that was left over from the temple and you come to their house and they offer it to you, don't ask, don't tell. Just don't get into matters. There's no real demon. I mean, there's no real gods. There are real demons. These other gods are not real, so don't worry about the meat itself, but don't be involved in the environment. That's what he tells them in 1 Corinthians. But here, he's just telling them to avoid that. Avoid the, what they were a part of, the idolatrous worship, things polluted by idols. He then tells them to avoid sexual immorality. That's forever. That's not con- part of the context. That's just forever in the Bible. Uh, he then says they were to avoid meat uh, from strangled animals. So uh, this was a pagan custom as well in their worship. Sometimes in the sacrificial ritual, they would... Uh, strangle an animal to kill it to capture its life breath. And so he is saying, don't do that. Uh, And then sometimes they would also drink or consume blood as part of their ritual, uh, ritualistic worship from the animals as well. So he says, don't drink or consume blood. Uh, They would do that to absorb the vital power of the animal. Now, these things he's forbidding them from are also in Leviticus 17 through 18. So some people say, well, what's really going on here is he's saying avoid certain practices that would be offensive to these um, Jewish Christians. And some people say, well, avoid your previous lifestyle. Really be a Christian. As one commentator said, uh, from Dennis Johnson, we have his book in the bookstore, he said, to become Christians, Gentiles need not become Jews but they cannot remain pagans. So in other words, they're telling them, really come out of the lifestyle you were a part of. That's probably going on here. But what's probably also going on here is that you're going to have people, he says the law of Moses is proclaimed every Sabbath in the synagogue. So we're trying to reach people who have certain scruples and convictions about things. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't eat blood sausage. Well, I guess they wouldn't eat uh, they wouldn't eat any pork either. But he's saying don't eat don't eat uh, 
things with blood or animals that are strangled, A, that represents your previous life in pagan worship. B, that is insensitive to these people, and we're trying to reach them. Or there may be new Christians who have weak consciences, and they think they still can't do that. So just don't do it and trip them up. It's, it's, he's telling them to try to get along and build in a loving way with the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. So that's sort of the debate. And then we have the solving of the problem. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So they wrote a letter to them, and this is what it said. Quote, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when when they were sent off, They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So here's how they solve the problem. They, they send a letter back, but they don't just send Paul and Barnabas back to their home church saying, uh, hey, this is what everybody said. They also send Silas uh, with them and Judas, uh, these believers, these leaders. They send them. They go back to Antioch. They tell them, hey, we heard that some people have troubled you. First of all, they didn't come from us. We didn't authorize them. Secondly, they tell them, look, we have come to one accord. We've debated this. We've talked about this. All of us as leaders, the elders of the churches, joined together, the apostles and the elders, along with the church, we say this, that we're not putting anything else on you. So you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to keep the law of Moses to be a believer and a follower of Jesus. We're not going to add anything else to what you must do, a burden on you to, uh, to become a Christian. And so they tell them that. They also tell them, oh, we're going to give you these, and they list the four things to avoid. And it says that when they heard this letter read, verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The Gentiles are so glad to hear this. I mean, you can imagine, you're converted, it costs you your family, perhaps you're being persecuted, you're not going down to the pagan temple and worshiping anymore, you convert to Christ, you're experiencing freedom, the forgiveness of sins, all of a sudden some teachers come in and said, you did it wrong, you're not really a Christian, you've got to do these other things, oh man, so then the leaders are going to go up and figure it all out, they come back, they have a letter, and so when you hear the letter that says, you're free, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because 
they were told, you don't need to do anything else to be a believer in Jesus, to follow Christ. That salvation is through faith in Christ. And so that is freeing to them. They rejoice. You don't have to keep the law to be a Christian. They rejoice about that. They are encouraged about that. What you first believed, it really is true. When you heard it, it seemed too good to be true. That you couldn't do things to earn God's favor, like in paganism, but God has favor on you in Christ. You're free. God loves you. God chose you. God freely forgives all your sins. They're encouraged. They're thankful for this. Probably the men in the room are really thankful to get the report, I'm guessing, with no modern anesthesia. Thinking, I get to avoid a surgical procedure without anesthesia. So I'm not going to be hyper-spiritual here. I'm going to tell you that the men were glad to hear that letter. I'm just going to tell you that. And some of the guys that were not very expressive got their praise on, and they were, woo, they were worshiping in that moment. I assure you, we are free. So they go and share the letter with the Gentiles, and that's how the story ends. There's a problem. A challenge to the gospel. There's a debate of the problem. They look at all the different uh, issues, and then there is a solving of the problem. They don't put anything else on them, but they call them to live in a way that distinguishes themselves from their former life and also considers these Jewish Christians as well and considers what could be sensitive to their conscience as well. So how do we apply something like this? I mean, there's probably no one in the room who's been told that you're a Christian, and then someone came to you in this way and said, man, you, if you're not uh, circumcised, you're not a Christian. I mean, you've probably never heard anything like that. This is very culturally, uh, this is occurring culturally at a context and a period of history that's different than ours, perhaps. Um, so how do we apply something like this? I mean, we could say a lot. Some people would read this and go immediately to polity and church government. The churches were, and I think there's something there, the churches were um, the churches were united and not isolated in radical independence such that the elders of the churches could come together and adjudicate a matter like this. Um, I don't think it's primarily a passage about polity and church government, though. Um, where do you go with something like this? Here's what I think a standout illustration from this passage is to us. Gospel freedom is worth fighting for. Gospel freedom is worth fighting for. We carelessly say this person's legalistic, which we shouldn't carelessly be doing that, but we carelessly say this person's legalistic, that practice is legalistic. You know, we, we toss the legalism flag anytime we don't like uh, what someone else is doing. Maybe they are legalistic. They also may be more godly than us. That could be the issue too. You know, they can go a lot of different ways. Maybe they're obeying the Lord. Um, so we quickly do that. And we quickly take a three and make it a ten. This is really a ten because someone is literally saying, you must do something else to be accepted by God. It's not just the blood of Jesus. It's not just the resurrection of Christ. It's that, sure, but it's something else. And when that happens, it gets serious. When people add to the gospel... When someone is, sink, uh, is attempting to steal away the free grace of God that Jesus died to give us, the free grace of God that cost Christ His life, when someone goes that direction, it is very, very serious. And it is a 10. It is a 10. 
And it's not just taking an issue and making it a gospel issue. So I don't get to take what's kind of concerning to me about other people and say, this is a gospel issue, and make it a 10. That's just being argumentative and uh, just arrogant about my own point of view. Uh, But this really is a 10. This is really answering the question, how is one a Christian? How does one become a Christian? Souls are at stake in this kind of this kind of discussion. And when teaching comes around and circulates that we need Jesus plus something to be accepted by God, we must take a stand. We need grace plus something. Well, it's grace, of course. Yes, we all believe in grace. That's the name of the church. Of course, we all believe in grace. But if you want to be accepted by God, you also need to... That is an erroneous, dangerous teaching. And we must say that is wrong when that happens. We should be gracious. We should be respectful. We should assume assume ignorance first, and not that someone's evil until we're able to talk with them or hear them. We should assume ignorance. We should be gracious, respectful, polite. We should lovingly appeal from Scripture, but we should not back down. And if there's going to be no little dissension, let it be about this. If there's going to be debate, let it be about something like this. If there's going to be separation, let it be about something that really matters, like a gospel issue. Let's don't take a small thing and make it a big thing. Let's allow big things to be big things, and let's allow small things to be small things. Gospel issues matter. They are a 10. Most other stuff that gets my emotions up to a 10 is not really a 10. They got your order wrong down at the restaurant. Oh, it's not a 10. It's not a 10. The Dallas Cowboys, that's not a 10. They won't even score 10 today. (laughs) Getting passed up for a promotion at work. Oh, I'm sorry if that happens, seriously, sincerely. But in the scope of eternity, it's just not a 10. That's not a 10. Obamacare. I don't know if you're for it or against it, but whether you're for it or against it, it's not a 10. No one's eternal soul is at stake. It's not a 10. Things in, most things in the church are not a 10. How we do children's ministry is not a 10. What age are the kids? What's the breakdown? How much of the service are they in? What's happening? Now, if we're not teaching the gospel over there, that's a 10. If we're teaching them, hey, boys and girls, be good and God will love you and you'll go to heaven if you're good, that's a 10 because that's not the gospel. But so many other things aren't. Style of music that the church has, whatever the church is, that's not a 10. It's a 3. It's a 2. It might be a 0.7. The lyrics might be a 10. If we're singing, I'm right with God because of what I do, well, that, now that's a 10. Musical style is not a 10. How we do small groups, how they meet, what do they cover, when do they meet, who's in them, those are not 10s. What we talk about in the meeting could be a 10. If if the issue is let's all help each other be better so that uh, God will accept us, that's a 10 because that's not gospel. See, these things aren't 10. And a lot of us will join a church over a 2 or a 3. 
Here's a two or a three, but it's what really matters to me. We put it up to a ten and we join with a two or a three without really thinking what's most important is that grace is being proclaimed, that the Bible is being taught, and that the gospel is on display in all that the church does. That's the ten. That's the ten. But oftentimes what I can do is be drawn to my two or three preference. Maybe it's not even a preference. Maybe it's something that's important. It's important, but it's just not. It's just not a ten. So we can join a church over a two or three. We can leave a church over a two or a three. I'll divide from a brother. I'll divide from a sister over something that it's a two or three. It's not a ten. A ten is a real reason to divide because it's a gospel line that is drawn. It's not just a line that is drawn. It's a wall that is built that separates gospel from works righteousness, Christian from unbeliever. Now, there's a bridge that runs through that wall to bring people over, but it's a dividing line between believer and unbeliever. And and the point I'm trying to make is that when the gospel is challenged, we must stand firm and address that, even fight for the gospel, even debate. There's a place for debate on this issue. Other issues, we need to properly proportion them. And we need to let a 7 be a 7, and an 8 be an 8, and a 1 be a 1, and a 10 be a 10. Now, that also means that when I see this in my own heart, it should rise to the level of importance. Now, again, I've never, never had the thought, wow, circumcision is necessary for me to be right with God. I've never had that thought. I'm not from a Jewish background. I didn't live in these days. But I've had this thought. You know, God probably doesn't accept me or love me because I did that really bad sin. God probably doesn't accept me because I didn't do that really righteous act that he expects of me. My position before God moves up and down based on my behavior. I, I, I don't, if you gave me a test question and said true or false, your behavior uh, adjusts your position before God. False. I would get the test answer right. But if you ask me about my heart, my emotions, and how I live, oh, I fail that test at various times. So because this is a serious gospel issue, when it's on display in a stark way like this, we want to address it. And when I see it in a subtle way in my own life, that is a time to give serious attention to that issue. And I need the grace of God to flood my heart and mind and reorient my thinking. So it's not a small thing in my own life. I need to address that. So if I If I am thinking these thoughts, God will accept me more if this happens, and God doesn't accept me if this happens, then I need to get back to the gospel and say, God has put nothing more on me but receive Jesus and what he's done. And your sins are forgiven and you're a new person. The flip side of that is, if I have this thought, which is license, uh, freedom to sin, uh, antinomianism is what we could call it. If I have this thought, you know, it doesn't matter. I can go ahead and do that. Sure, it's a sin, but God will forgive me. That's an abuse of grace. If I had that attitude, oh, it doesn't really matter, then I need to say, boy, that needs serious attention. So if it doesn't matter what I do at all, then I'm moving into an area where I'm abusing grace. If I'm over here saying, man, it totally matters what I do or God won't even accept me, then I've got a misunderstanding about grace. That's legalism. So if I find that in my heart, I want to address that. It's very serious, and, and God wants to, it's serious because God wants to set me free. God wants me to experience the freedom that, that uh, was the result of this conversation, this debate. And you really see that in the next point, which the only, last point I have. Two, two implications. Gospel freedom is worth fighting for, and gospel freedom brings joy.
I love it that whenever they are out telling about how the Gentiles came to Christ just through believing in Jesus, not with the law, not with circumcision, every time, almost every time we read this, it says, and people were joyful. They were filled with joy. Or here, when they heard the letter, they rejoice. What does rejoice mean? You're joyful again. We're joyful when our sins were forgiven. We're joyful when we first heard about Christ. We're joyful when our conscience was cleansed. We're joyful when the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us. Oh, then we freaked out because we found out, oh, we may have to do these other things to be accepted by God. Then they read us the letter. Now we're in joy again because we see, yes, the gospel's true. Every time we hear the gospel reiterated, every time we hear the good news preached, every time we hear the freedom announced, I believe God's intention for us in that is that that produces and brings a joy to our soul. A joy which is above, it's supra-circumstantial, it's above our circumstances. A joy which cannot be conquered by the challenges of life, but a joy which is sustained by God. Salvation is free. Jesus did the work. They are, they're smashing the idea that we need to incorporate our works into our salvation. They're obliterating the concept that I need to make a contribution and do this and then God will accept me. They're saying, no, never. And that brings freedom. And that brings joy. If you're not a Christian here today or you're not sure if you're a Christian, the good news is it's actually better than you can imagine. I don't know how great you can imagine it would be what Christ has done for you, but it's way better than you know. It's way better than I know. And it's the message. This is the message. You can't become religious and earn God's favor. You can't become more moral and have God love you. You can't stop doing some things so that God will welcome you and start doing some things. The way you experience the welcome of God, the way you experience forgiveness, the way you get a new mind and a new heart and a new conscience is to realize that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus was resurrected, and you believe in him. You turn from those sins and you turn to him and you receive him. You just believe. It's just what he did for you, his grace to you. That's how you become a Christian. And that's really good news. You could do that today. You don't have to take a course. We'd love to have you come to the bridge this Thursday. But attendance at the bridge is not required to become a Christian. You don't have to get rid of that one dirty habit you have. You don't have to go do some good things to win God's favor. You have to acknowledge your sin today, acknowledge your need for a Savior, and believe in Him. That's what you do. You can do that where you're sitting right now. You can do that and receive from Him. And if you have believed, God's call is to enjoy his freedom. Enjoy his freedom in such a way that it, it, it gives us the power to put to death those tendencies that say I'm not accepted. To put that to death and enjoy his freedom in what he has done for us. You're, you're free. You knew that and it's being reiterated here today lest you ever wondered. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. It's only what he has done. And that's worth taking a stand on. That's worth building our lives together. That's worth joining together and say, we are one. That's what they said. We're in one accord is what the letter said. We may have some differences in various ways, but here's one thing. We're locking arms on this. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus did. We're united in this. This is our mission. This is what we're about. This is what we're building. And lest anybody challenge that with false doctrine, we will take a stand and we will say, this is the place where we will not move. This is the barrier that will not get inched forward and compromised. That salvation is by grace alone. And that that produces a joy in our lives. 
God desires you to have a joy in your life. I don't mean an emotional happiness that's giddy all the time. I mean a deep, deep deep-seated joy in your soul that comes from knowing I can rest because he's done all the work. I can rest because he's done all the work and he accepts me. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.